and your patience with the children when they're in worship. And uh, as, you, as you probably know, as I've mentioned before, some of our children have peculiar challenges that, are, uh, um, that make them stand out a little bit. And uh, on Friday night, uh, I went to the Epley house and Kaylee saw me and she went, Pastor Brian, give me a hug, which is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the fact that they are here and that they are warmly received and that this is a safe place for them is making a big difference in their development. So please continue. Amen. All right. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the ordinary means of grace. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to simply come alongside each other and love each other and bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for just the, the beauty of real Christian fellowship and friendship as we know that we are, are bound together in the Lord and um, we're stuck with one another for all eternity. And you can pick your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. And uh, we're adopted into the family of God and we belong to one another. And it is wonderful when that is a warm and a, and a glorious thing how pleasant it is when kindred dwell together in unity. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to increase our unity. We, we pray that you would continue to heal past pains and hurts and that we would find ourselves drawn to one another graciously, forgivingly, speaking the truth in love, of course, but always willing to overlook offense. We pray, King Jesus, for those among us who are ill. I, I think of Joanne and I ask, O oh Lord, don't know what the problem is there, but I ask, O oh Lord, for her healing. Uh, we pray for Anna McCartney and all the darkness that she is wrestling and struggling with, and uh, some of it may be uh, brain chemistry, but I think some of it at least is spiritual. And we do pray that you would bind Satan concerning her and that you would lift her up. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the, uh, the marvelous improvement this week from Deneen Stauffer. And we, we pray, O oh King, that you would continue to sustain her recovery and uh, set her free from that hospital bed and let there be no lingering or lasting effects from the, the COVID that she suffered. And Father, there are others known to us and beloved by us who are struggling with, if not COVID pneumonia, other things that are equally horrible, uh, cancers of various sorts and so many other things, Father. We just pray, Father, for your healing grace to be upon and among those who so desperately need it. We pray for patience and courage for those who are walking with them. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in these times, what is real and what is eternal and what is truly valuable would come to the fore. We pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are dealing with chronic illnesses. They're not going to take their lives immediately, but they make their lives very hard. And I think of Nita Sabella, and I ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to heal her and relieve her pain and raise her up and allow her to be independent and mobile and uh, productive again and give her patience in this affliction. I know it has been a, a very trying time for both her body and her soul. We pray for those who are struggling with the illnesses that you can't see, which manifest themselves 
in thoughts that are not congruent with reality and behaviors that are not congruent with reality, whether that would be bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or depression. And uh, it's so hard, Father, for those who have not been there to have an appropriate level of sympathy for those who are. And we pray, Jesus, that you would give us each the ability to, at least in our imaginations, in our, in our ruminations, to try and see the world as other people see it, and that we might understand that peculiar form of suffering. And we do pray for strength and patience on the part of those who are afflicted with such things. And we pray for the effectiveness of medications and things like that, that the side effects would not overwhelm and become too unpleasant. And we ask, O oh Lord, for the hope of healing one day. We pray for those who are grieving this year. It's always hard to lose someone. It's especially hard when it's your first holiday and sometimes your second and your third and your fourth holiday if you've lost that person. And so we just pray for peace. We pray for the memories that come to be gentle. And if they be tinged with tears, let them also be tinged with joy. For there is a great celebration coming and all of our celebrations here are only types and shadows of the great party that we will inherit when we enter into the kingdom. Lord, bless your church, strengthen it, cause it to grow, fill it, O oh Lord, with people who want to love you and serve you and worship you. Bless our world, Lord. We pray for peace. We pray for peace among enemies. We pray for peace in Russia in particular. We pray for peace with China. We pray, Lord, for um, a, a cessation of hostilities in the Middle East, and we pray for all of those who have been so badly afflicted by the conflict. There are years and years of conflict. Please, Jesus, bring peace. In all these things we lift up, we do it in the name of him who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's do the Nicene Creed together, since I took it out of order. So wanting to pray. The mic's a little hot. We got a wing going on. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. The deacons would come forward. We will collect the offering plates here and say a prayer, and then we'll have our offering. Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise for all of your good gifts to us. Even the poorest among us don't know the kind of want and deprivation that many know in many places now and in all of human history. We are truly among the most blessed of all the generations. Help us to see that, Father. Help us to rest in you. Help us to be reminded that we actually need very little and that we can carry none of it away when we leave this world. And let us therefore give these gifts and these offerings with a cheerful heart. And we pray that you would bless the giver and the gift. In Jesus' name, amen. stand for the doxology. seated. That, that uh, carol you were playing is like one of my absolute favorites, right, Laura? Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's an old English one called The Holly and the Ivy, and if you want to hear the absolute best version of it, look up on YouTube a video by a group called The Medieval Babes, and they're doing that, and it's, I conned my wife and a few other women into doing it once in Sturgis, and they did a wonderful job, and she refuses to do it again. I don't know why. She did a great job. 
Well, let's look at our scripture this morning in John chapter 1. And uh, verses 14 through 18. We're finishing out the prologue of John's gospel now. These four messages on the prologue of John's gospel. Listen to the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Oh Lord, the glory that is in these verses, they drip with the weight of heavenly glory. Assist me, O Father, as I unfold these things for your people. Let your book become alive. Let your spirit descend upon us in power. Let us feel the amazing weight of your presence. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, this is the, the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas. The candles are getting shorter, but I think they'll last one more service. And we've been working our way through the prologue of John's Gospel, which describes the journey of the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word, from heaven to earth. On our first Sunday of Advent, we, we opened with a, a puzzling statement that pointed to a great mystery. We were introduced to this being, this person called the Word. And we find out that the Word was with God, present at the beginning, before God made anything, which means that the Word wasn't made by God. Rather, the Word seems to have always existed. And then we're told something even more puzzling. The Word was God. And so we discover that God is a, a more dynamic and complex being than human beings first understood. He is one, but he is also many. He is one, but he is three. One God in three persons. And then we talked a little bit the next week about the fact that this word has life as one of his essential properties. A better way to say it, perhaps, is that he is life. He is the source and the originator of all life. Everything that is alive is only alive because it borrows life from him for a little while, and then it gives it back. And we call that giving back of life, we call that death. And we find that there are, if we examine our New Testament carefully, we find that there are two different kinds of life. There is bios, where we get our word biology, which is physical life, it's natural life, it's carnal life. And then there is zoe, 
which is spiritual life. Plants and animals and lost men and women, they only have bios. They only have physical life. Saved men and women have both bios and zoe. And when it's, when it's time to die, when it's time to, to come to the end of our days and to give back the, the energy, the, the bios, the zoe continues on and will continue until the resurrection of the body. And then there will be no more bios and zoe. It will all be zoe. And in this Zoe life, this spiritual life, this eternal kind of life, which is the light of men, says John, it grants us understanding. The light of men grants us wisdom and power and goodness and joy. And we're told that the darkness doesn't understand that light, doesn't like that light, wants to obscure it or even to snuff it out if it could. But it can't. Last week we saw that this being, the word, the true light that came into the world is one who came to the place that he made. He came to his own things, his home, in the sense of the place that he built for himself and the place where he keeps his stuff that belongs to him. And he came to his own things, but his own ones, that is, his special hand-picked people, his servants, those who were given guard over his household, so to speak, did not receive him into his own home. The wind and the waves obeyed him. Water transformed into wine when he spoke. Um, Loaves and fishes multiplied at his command. And the, the Jews, by and large, looked at him and then told him to go pound sand. Even though he is very clearly giving evidence of his identity with all that he is and all that he does and all that he says. And when he makes it even clearer and says things like, before Abraham was, I am, or I and the Father are one, they pick up stones to stone him. Because they say he's made himself equal with God. And he's like, "Uh yeah And they hated him. But not everybody. Most but not everybody. And this was not a surprise to him. This is how he had planned it the whole time. But it says to everyone who did receive him, who did believe on his name, he granted a precious and irrevocable right. The only time in the Bible that it says we have a right to claim against God. And, and he says, you, if you receive him, if you believe on his name, and we don't mean just believe that he exists, to, it's to believe on, like it's when you sit on that pew and you believe that it's going to hold you up. You know, you, you just kind of rest on it. I had a, our, our tile floor in our kitchen, I hate that floor. It's got really wide grout lines, and as you scoot your chairs back and forth across it, it's slowly making the chairs go to pieces. And the other day, I sat down in my chair to cut up some onions, and the chair completely collapsed from under me. And I managed not to hit my head or cut myself with a knife in my right hand. My wife was like, that was pretty good for a fat guy. And uh, she didn't put the fat guy part in it. You know, sometimes chairs don't hold you up is the point. We, we put our confidence in things and they don't work out. But Jesus is one who will never let you down. That you just believe into him. You rest upon him. It's like falling into a, a mattress uh, at the end of a long day. And you're tired and you're just received. 
You just rest. You just let go. You don't lie there all rigid, worried about whether it's going to hold you up. And that's, that's how Jesus is. He's, he gives us the right to become children of God. Well, this week we open with an even more shocking statement. We've already been told that the word, the true light, entered into the world. It says he was, was coming into the world. And if you think about that, that statement, it is a little bit confusing. Why? Well, because the word is God, right? And God, by definition, is omnipresent, which means present everywhere at the same time. In other words, there's no where, where God is not present. That's why those who describe hell as a separation from God are mistaken. It's not a separate, you can't be separated from God. You can't go somewhere where he is not. If God were not present in hell, then, then he wouldn't be omnipresent. And so he is present in hell. He's just present in his justice and in his wrath. You know, the interesting thing, the scripture says that our God is a consuming fire. And that, that's not just a, a word to the unbeliever. It's a word to the believer, too. And, and the only place, uh, the only thing hotter, I think, than the fires of hell are the fires of heaven. And the only people who aren't going to be in heaven, I think, are the people who don't want to be there. Because they don't want God to be God, and they don't want to be around God. But when you can't escape from him, that, that fire, which is light and joy to the saint, is odious and awful to the unbeliever. Get, get him away from me, they say, and there is no place to go that's away from me. And I think that in and of itself is the torment of hell, that I exist, and for a while on earth I could pretend he wasn't there, but now I can't, and he's there all the time, and it's searing and stabbing pain to be next to him I don't want to be next to. Well, if the word is God, then there's no way that he was not present in the world the whole time before, right? And so, so this language of coming into the world must mean that he is present in the world in a different way than he was before. I mean, he, he was always there. It's just that now he's coming in a, in a different way. And John tells us what that way is. And, and it's even more shocking than the, the word being both God and with God. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now here is the mystery behind all mysteries. How could the infinite God who has no beginning and no end about whom you cannot ever say he is not present here in this location or that location, how can the, all the fullness of that God come to dwell in a human body, which is by nature, by definition, can only be in one place at one time. So that wherever he is means that he is not present literally everywhere else. Infinite Godhood into a body. All of it. How could he who has no beginning and no end be conceived and then born and then die? How could he who knows all things grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, as Luke 2.52 clearly states that he did. 
How could he not know something? As he clearly states in Matthew 24, 36, he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Wait, you're omniscient, yes. Do you know what day you're coming back? No. What a mystery. If the Trinity is hard to understand, the hypostatic union between the human nature and the divine nature of Christ is even harder. Understanding this takes deep, deep study and prayer, and even then, there is still just a huge element of divine mystery here. There's just stuff that we are not equipped to figure out. We're certainly expected to make use of the brains that we have and the information that God has given us in the Scripture, and we can do a lot with that, and we should. But when we've thought our best thoughts about all the biblical data and we come to the edge of our understanding, then we have to bow before the divine wisdom and the divine power which made this mystery so. The one thing we must never say is, if I can't figure it out, I refuse to believe that it's true. I mean, who said that your brain was that good? You can't even understand your automatic transmission. I bet. But you still drive your car, right? Who said your brain was so good that you could figure out God? There's an old saying in Latin preserved through the centuries of church history, finitum non capax infinitum. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Something that's finite, like your brain, cannot possibly take in all the things that are true of the infinite simply because there's not enough room There's not enough storage capacity and computing capacity there. It's like a a sponge can be in the ocean, right? One of those natural sponges that you pay so much for. A sponge can be in the ocean, and a little bit of the ocean can be in the sponge, but the sponge cannot contain the whole ocean. God is an ocean. You are a sponge. Now, it's interesting how John expresses the the fact of the incarnation. He could have said the word became human or was made human, using the Greek word anthropos, where we get our word anthropology, the study of human cultures. He, He could have said the word of God was made man, using the Greek word andros, which in English is associated with the male, for instance, the, the steroid that St. Louis Cardinal's powerhouse home run king was taking, Mark McGuire, was called andro. It was a male hormone. He could have used the word andros, but Don didn't use anthropos. He didn't use andros. He, he used the word flesh. Flesh. The Greek word is sarx. That word flesh, sarx, is never used in a positive way in the Bible. Never, never, never used in a positive way. The, the word choice is designed to teach us something. It, it teaches us that not only was the word really and truly human, but that the word subjected himself to all of the miseries and all of the calamities that are associated with human nature. The weakest part of human nature is the flesh. Flesh speaks of our mortality. The fact that we are are dying from the minute that we're born. Psalm 78 and verse 39, God remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. And Christ was put to death 
in the flesh. For, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. That's Romans 8. Flesh speaks of the taint of sin that penetrates every part of our natures. You go all the way back to Genesis 6 when God is looking at the mess that lost human beings have made of the world and he says, I'm going to flood it. I'm going to kill it. And he says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. It's interesting now. That's about the longest anybody can live. 120, 122 years. Christ, though he was without sin, nevertheless appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh, says the scripture. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. It's in the book of Romans. Isaiah the prophet, who most clearly predicted the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, cried out, all flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You feel your beauty fading, oh fleshy one? You drag, out the, drag out the pictures of you when you were 20, and then set them beside the pictures of you now. And you, you can see your, the beauty of the flesh fading like the flowers of the field. My wife put one up on Facebook, and everybody went, who is that man? Rex said, I didn't know who that was. <laughs> Me either anymore. He who could not have known about the word who was with God and who was God was the one about whom prophecies were spoken. The one by whom prophecies were spoken. But how wonderful and how mysterious it is that the one who endures forever became as the withering grass and the fading flower. And he did so to save us. And while he was flesh, he didn't cease to be the word. So this idea that he became flesh, it's like, it's like he took the worst of the human condition on himself, sickness, pain, loss, rejection, decay, hatred, bleeding, dying. He took it all. And he took it all to save us. And therefore, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted and tested in all ways as we are, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are more mysteries in this passage. The word became flesh, and then the word dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt is an interesting word. In its basic form, which is a noun, not a verb, it's the noun for the word tent. And Luke takes that word tent and turns it into a verb. He tented among us. He, he pitched a tent among us. So the word, the glorious creator of the entire heavens and earth comes down and he's made flesh, weak and vile, and then he pitches a tent and dwells among us. Think about who stays in tents in Jesus' day and in our day. 
Who stays in tents? Well, shepherds dwell in tents when they're out with their flocks. Even, even today, shepherds dwell in tents. And, and they, they endure the same weather as the sheep because a, a tent is not very substantial shelter. When it's cold, the shepherd's cold. When it rains, the shepherd might get some shelter from the rain, but not much. And the tents in Jesus' day didn't have these nice waterproof nylon uh, trays with the seam sealed so that the water can't get in. They just had a, a blanket or a skin spread on the ground. And so when the water rolled down the hill, it rolled right under their skin and, and the floor of the tent got wet. When predators come, tents offer no protection. Just this past summer, when we were getting ready to go to Montana, they had two grizzly attacks and one of them was a woman sleeping in a tent. And the bear just went through the side of the tent and ate her. And my wife had wanted to go to that part of Montana and get away for a little while. And I was like, there's bears there. I don't think so. And, and so we didn't. We, we stayed away from the bears. But, but it ate her. I remember hearing another story. Um, Sturgis had, a, had a, you know, the town limits. And then there was this space of land that belonged to Fort Meade and the, and the Bureau of Land Management. And, and then there was a, a subdivision called Blucksburg Mountain. And about half of my congregation lived on Blucksburg Mountain. And there was a, a really big mountain lion that lived on Blucksburg. And you would walk out your front door sometimes, and there he'd be looking at you. And, uh, and it was not a comfortable thing, especially if you had small children. Well, w one time we had some people that came and stayed the whole summer and ran that little campground at that BLM patch of ground between Sturgis and Blucksburg. And they had a guy who was sleeping in a two-man tent in the middle of the night. And that lion got a deer right there next to his tent and sat down and consumed the deer right there next to his tent. And the guy's like holding still, trying not to move, not to breathe the whole time. And then the lion dragged the deer off to hide it in a tree somewhere. And he went and got in his pickup and closed the door and, and locked it. Because a tent is not going to stop a big mountain lion, 175 pound, 180 pound mountain lion. Tents are not substantial. And of course, Jesus says of himself that he is the, the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He takes on the wolf who comes. And the wolf comes seeking to devour the sheep. And, and he pitched a tent to be in the fields and in the pastures with his sheep to dwell among them and to watch over them and to hazard all of life together with them. Tents are also the dwelling place of the poor and the landless, and the dispossessed, and the wanderer. Go to the eastern Mediterranean today. Go to the refugee camps in Lebanon, or to the island of Lesbos. I've got a young man who I know who's a missionary with Youth with a Mission on the island of Lesbos. He was, uh, his name is Sam Loftus. He's the son of one of my elders in the Sturgis Church, and, and he works with the refugees there on Lesbos. And all of the refugees are living Intense, row after row after row of dirty white tents. In the winter, such as it is, it rains and it's cold. In the summer, it's hot. And they're hot and they're cold. When it's hot, it's cold. Kings live in palaces. The rich dwell in fine houses. Even the poor huddle into rented houses or apartments, crummy and run down as they might be, but you only end up in a tent after you've lost everything. 
Jesus said, I'm going to give it all up. I'm rich, and for your sakes, I'm going to become poor that you might become rich. Jesus said, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. And he moved from place to place with no permanent home in this world. Who else dwells in tents? Well, soldiers dwell in tents, don't they? But only when they're at war, the peacetime army, peacetime army doesn't dwell in tents, except during training exercises. But when they deploy for war, the tent is the first home the soldier has near the battlefield. And sometimes it's the only home they have for the whole duration. Jesus came to earth to launch an operation that will end the war one day between God and the serpent and his seed. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was like D-Day, storming the beaches of Normandy, establishing a beachhead for a base for further operations. If you understand military history and strategy, you understand that once the Allies were ashore at Normandy and they made a secure beachhead and they had these mobile harbors that they brought over, they towed over, and they sank right there, Uh, Once those were in place and they could unload ships with supplies on them and they had a secure supply line and a a secure line for men and materiel, well then it was no longer possible for Hitler to, to win the war. There was a lot of fighting to do before they were marching in a victory parade in the streets of Berlin, but the defeat of Hitler was certain after that point. With the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan's defeat became certain. He came as the captain of the army of the host of the Lord. In the little epistle of of 1 John, John tells us, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. That's 1 John 3, 8. Christ told Peter when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter needed to put away his puny little sword. He said, my heavenly Father has 12 legions of angels at my command. Now, That's 72,000 angels. One medium-sized angel, maybe two, could no doubt have done the job of preventing the arrest of Jesus, but 72,000 of them? It's just ridiculous overkill. Finally, God's first place of abiding with his people was a tent, wasn't it? The tent from which our church gets its name, the tabernacle. God's Shekinah glory dwelt between the cherubim on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies where none could approach except the high priest and him only on one day a year, the day of atonement, and only after he himself had been sprinkled with the blood of a lamb for his sins. And he brought more blood to cover over the sins of the people, and if there was one wrong move, God would strike him dead, as happened to Nadab and Abihu. The other priests would sit outside of the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It was kind of like the narthex, and, and they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle, and they would hang bells on his robe. And the bells were there so that they knew that he was alive and moving, And the rope was there so that they could drag his body out if he messed something up and God struck him dead. 
In Jesus, all the fullness of God had dwelt bodily, and the eyes of flesh could behold his glory. When, when the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us, when he tabernacled among us, we could see his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And sinners can receive grace from him. Grace upon grace. Grace piled higher than your sins. Grace for you and grace for me. Moses was the builder of the first tabernacle. And through Moses was the giving of the law. John tells us this in, in 1 John 1, 17. The giving of the law is a word of death to you and to me. It's not because there's something wrong with the law. It's because there's something wrong with you and, and with me. The law says, this is what God demands. Do it and you shall live. But I cannot do it. And therefore I shall not live. And if I try and live by the works of the law, I hang myself by the law. I, I started breaking the holy law of God before I could walk, before I could speak. By the time I was old enough to begin to understand thou shalt not covet, I had already been a lifelong coveter. I remember vividly a scene from my childhood when I was about four, maybe just turned five years old, and my mom had put me in the bathtub in my grandparents' house. At that point in time, we lived in a mobile home in their backyard. And they had put me in the, in the bathtub, and, uh, and I was playing in there, and I always enjoyed playing in the bath. And my grandmother mentioned that my mom had kind of snuck away to go on a bike ride with my dad. And I knew in an instant that she had only stuck me in that tub so that she could get away from me, right? And I remember feeling this intense feeling of anger that came upon me because she had stuck me in that tub and run away with daddy to go on a bike ride. I liked bike rides. I had just learned how to ride a bike without training wheels. And so I was capable of going on the bike ride with them. And sure, a bath is fun, but her sneaking off ruined it for me. Mommy was mine. Her time was mine. Her presence was mine. All the bike rides were to be my bike rides with mommy. And the truth is, before I was five years old, I was a lawbreaker. I coveted and broke the 10th commandment. I coveted my mommy's time. I coveted my brother's stuff. I coveted my neighbor's bike. I coveted all the time. I lied and I broke the ninth commandment. I stole staying at the daycare center. Kid has a toy, kid likes the toy, kid turns his back, I grab the toy, I stole. You think it's funny, but it's not. <laughs> I was enraged at my mother and my father regularly, and therefore I broke the sixth commandment. I dishonored and disobeyed my father and my mother regularly. They said that we don't want you climbing the trees with our kitchen knives in your belt, but I wanted to be Tarzan, so I would climb the trees with the knife in the belt. And when they said don't do that, I did it anyway. My mother was convinced I was going to be disemboweled at the base of some oak tree somewhere as a five-year-old. I broke the fifth commandment all the time. I was my own little God, the boss of my life. And so I broke the first commandment. And so my childish prayers that I learned to parrot, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Oh, I didn't 
mean those? I was taking the name of the Lord in vain, so I broke the third commandment. Do this and you shall live. What a joke. From birth I had gone astray, and so had you. In the first tabernacle, the rules of the place went like this. You are foul with sin, so stay away lest you die. When Jesus comes to be a tabernacle among us, the rule is you are foul with sin. Draw near so you don't die. In the first tabernacle, the rule was the high priest must offer the blood of a lamb to cover your sins, but that only lasts a year, and that coverage wears off. It's like that oily stuff that you spray for undercoating on your car or your truck, and it's only good for a year, and then after that, you have to have it reapplied. you got to redo it. NH oil or something like that is what they call it. And the high priest had to come and he had to to reapply that blood year in and year out on your behalf so that God might continue to overlook your sins. The language in the original Hebrew is interesting. The language in the Hebrew states it as though the blood hides your sins so that they're still there, but God can't see them and become angry about them. In Jesus, who tabernacled among us, the rule is this. I am the high priest forever of the order of Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, Melech Zedach, king of righteousness. I am the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek was also the king of Salem, or Shalom, which means peace. I am the true king of peace. These earthly high priests who were types and shadows of me entered into the most holy place with the blood of a lamb to temporarily hide the sins of the people from the face of God. But by the blood of bulls and goats was no sin ever forgiven. Jesus says, I am the true high priest of eternal office. And I am also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I entered the holy of holies in the heavenlies, which is the true or holy of holies. The earthly one was only a copy of mine. And I sprinkled my own blood on the mercy seat. And then I exited and I sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I sat down because the effect of my blood applied to you never wears off. It doesn't hide the sin. It puts it away once and for all. By one sacrifice, I have made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's Hebrews 10, 13. And that whole book of Hebrews right there, in that last little bit I just said, that's the whole book of Hebrews in a nutshell. Go and read it. It's wonderful. All these things in the Old Testament that these poor Jewish Christians are being tempted to return to because the persecution is hot and it's painful, and people are dying, and families are being rent asunder, and children are going who knows where. And and the writer writes to them and says, now, these old things were wonderful in their time, but they just pointed forward to Christ. The the old things were, were effective in their time only because God used them to point to Christ where the truth and the salvation and the light always lay. After explaining in brief the significance of Christ, open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's kind of towards the back. To Revelation, you've gone too far. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So he writes and he tells them about the superiority of Christ to Moses. As great as Moses was, and the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And then he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he's talking then about the Old Testament and the giving of the law, received a, a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. In other words, all of this merits your most serious and your most careful attention, and it still does today. As David says in Psalm 2, speaking once again prophetically and beyond what he possibly could have known, there is no place to hide from the sun. There's no place to hide from the sun. The only thing to do is kiss the sun, make peace with him, and make peace through him. Stop trying to hide from the sun. Stop rebelling against the sun. Stop raging with the kings of the earth. And instead, hide yourself in the sun and live. That is the free offer of the gospel made to everyone. Come to the Son, receive him, believe on his name, and receive the right to become children of God. Father, thank you so much for the marvelous gift of the scriptures and how they are woven in and out and interwoven with each other. And verse illuminates verse. Sometimes it's only in the way of a flash of an image, and sometimes it's in a rational proposition, but your word is so full, and by it we are instructed, and we learn the fear of the Lord. Please, Father, settle these things in our heart. Press them into our heart as we go and celebrate soon the feast of Christmas where we remember the birth of your only begotten Son, the Word made flesh, who came and pitched a tent among us. Amen.